Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it will encourage you and help you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. I hope you have your Bibles, and if you do, would you turn in them, be that book form or virtual form, to Revelation chapter 5. Yes, thank you, Dave. I see you using your fake Bible there. If anybody else has a fake Bible, you can just pretend and then use your iPhone or iPad and find Revelation chapter 5. By way of just sort of helping bring people up to speed together, if this happens to be, it seems every week we have somebody who's new with us, and we're so glad to have you with us, and I can understand that it might be a bit of a wild thing to drop in in the middle of a Revelation series. So for the sake of those who are new with us this week, I'm going to give as brief as possible, but a bit of a catch-up for you. And for the rest of us, it's just helpful to have these things in mind as we approach today's text together. The Revelation, the last book of the Bible, was written by the Apostle John under the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit 2,000 years ago. It was in the late first century A.D., Persecution and pressure was mounting everywhere in the Roman world against followers of Jesus. And so followers of Jesus were put in a position where they had a choice. Compromise and dodge the discomforts of persecution or faithfulness and stand in the path of pending death, ostracization, loss, and so on. Can you imagine what that would have been like for them? Now, as you think about their circumstance, it made sense that the Spirit wanted to send a message to them, something vitally important for them to to weigh out and consider as they thought through their options in the world in which they live. Now, you and I live in a different set of circumstances now. However, there are some similarities. None of us in this room likely faced anything this week for which we thought, I may die for confessing the name of Jesus for following the ways of Jesus. We may feel pressure, we may feel um, pushed to the outside at times and marginalized, that's normal, but that's not persecution. We do feel some things that are somewhat similar to what they felt, and in the most beautiful way, and this is how the Word of God works, while it was written thousands of years ago, with clear messages for its first audiences, by the Spirit, there are relevant messages to every generation that's followed, including ours today. But for us to understand what Revelation means for us today, We must first understand what it meant for those to whom it was first written. When we understand that, then it has the best opportunity to speak to our souls in our moment right now. Does that make sense? For those who are joining us and you're like, well, what's your best try at a summary of Revelation? Why was it written? Here it is. The Revelation was written so that followers of Jesus who are facing the pressures of culture and the gods of their age could see what is actually going on behind the scenes. That comes from the word apocalypse. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ doesn't mean the end times or the bad news or the disastrous things. Apocalypse in its original intended meaning 2,000 years ago meant unveiling. Getting to behold Jesus together. Getting to behold the real reality that's going on behind the scenes while everything seems to continue on chaotically around us in the world. So that they could see what is actually going on behind the scenes so that they could see who the Lord and the Savior of the world really is. Not themselves. Not the gods of their age. Not the Roman or the pagan gods 
that they worship then, not the gods that are the gods of our age today, not the emperor, not you, not me, not Satan, but the lamb. And settle once and for all who their allegiance, trust, and worship belongs to. Now, I don't expect you to memorize a paragraph, but every time you read Revelation for the rest of your life, I want you to remember these two words. Here's the heart of Revelation in two words. Behold Jesus. Now, if there were natural responses to beholding Jesus, it would be this. Number one, it's worship. Number two, it's witness. So maybe you could remember four words about Revelation. That'll help you every time you read it. Now, where we find ourselves heading into chapter five today on the heels of chapter four yesterday, on the heels of chapters two and three through the summer, which were seven letters from the Spirit to seven churches, real churches, on the heels of an introduction, the first vision of Jesus, which is in chapter one of Revelation, we find ourselves in this pivot point in the book of Revelation, where we're about to head into three sets of seven, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And they all seem to be echoing the same kind of message. This is God pouring out his wrath upon evil itself. And it's difficult. And we need to brace ourselves and prepare ourselves for it. And so chapter 4 and chapter 5 help you and I to prepare ourselves for what we're about to see about how God is pouring out his wrath upon evil in human history. God wants, to see, God wants us to see something in chapters 4 and 5. He wants you and I to see behind the scenes. Last week we talked about glasses. For those who have fuzzier vision, the moment you put on your glasses, all of a sudden there's clarity. We watched a couple videos last week of people who are colorblind who put on glasses that help them to see color for the first time in their lives and what that experience was like for them. The color surrounded them. It was everywhere, but they couldn't see it until they put those glasses on. And Revelation 4 and 5 help us to see into heaven, which is not way far away through the ceiling, through the blue sky and the atmosphere, way past the furthest galaxies, somewhere on the other side of the universe. That's not where heaven is. Heaven surrounds us. It's God's present reality that is filling the earth in an unseen realm that he rules from, that he reigns from. Heaven is not just a future destination. It's a present reality. And God is leaning in towards earth with his desire, as Jesus said, that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is where? In heaven. And so God wants us to behold something going on right now now in unseen realms. Last week in chapter 4, we saw, we beheld something together in chapter 4, a throne. As chaotic as the world may seem with our natural eyes, it helps to put on Revelation 4 glasses and realize, wait, we're not left to chaos and chance. There is a throne and someone is on it. It is God himself. Yahweh's on the throne and he's seated. He's not pacing. He's not wringing his hands wondering, what are we going to do? He's calm. He's taking action. He's speaking. He's reigning. And he is at work in our world in important ways. For those of you who like seeing some things laid out in chart format, I give you this. Chapter 4 and chapter 5. We're pivoting from chapter 4 into chapter 5. And there's interesting parallels that exist between the two of them. There are a set of chapters that are meant to exist together. In chapter 4... We see a perspective from the Old Testament. Can we go to the next slide? We see a perspective from the Old Testament. Chapter 5, we see a perspective of the New Testament. Chapter 4, there's a theophany, which is a 
revelation of God, of Yahweh. In chapter 5, there's a Christophany, which is a revelation of Jesus. In chapter 4, where is the Spirit? In heaven. In chapter 5, as we're going to see today, where is the Spirit? The Spirit is on earth. I hope you have turned to chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to read it in just a moment. But before we do, I want you to have something in mind as we approach the text today. In the past year, as a church family, we've engaged in a couple particular series that I want to draw your memory to. If you're newer to our church, you can go on our website anytime you like. Click um, messages and you can go backwards and re-listen via podcast or watch online in our YouTube format and catch up on missed series in the past. But I want to draw attention or thought from a couple previous series that we did. One was called The Story of God and the Five Trees. It was actually called Gospel Fluency, but what we talked about was the story of God and the five trees. And then we also did a series this year called The Genesis out of, guess which book of the Bible? Genesis. And essentially, within these two series and studies that we did together in the last year, they help address two pretty important questions. Number one, what on earth is God doing? And number two, what on earth are we doing here? Big, big questions. And I want to just refresh your memory on a couple things connected to those questions. The first thing is this, that God designed people with purpose. God designed people with purpose. There's three particular purposes I want you to Remember, number one, we're called to be his unique image bearers. Number two, we're called to receive his blessing and multiply his blessing to fill the earth. This is right from the beginning of scripture in Genesis. And then thirdly, you and I, humanity is designated a special place in God's creation to have dominion over creation. This is massively important. God has delegated authority to humanity to govern and rule his creation. How are we doing at that? <laughs> now, with this in mind, I mean, what's the intended order that we saw in those two series? I, I want you to see this. The intended order is this, that God would rule in loving relationship over people. And then that people would rule in loving relationship with creation over creation. This is the designated order. We see it in the first couple chapters of Genesis. It's massively important for us to have in mind as we head into Revelation chapter 5. For those of you that journeyed with us a year ago in the Gospel Fluency series on the, the five trees that appear in Scripture, the first two trees... Very, you know, the most obvious ones that we can bring to mind, usually the tree of life and then the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I want us just to think about those two trees for a moment. They were in the garden in the beginning in Genesis. Why were they there? The first tree existed to be a tree that helped humanity remember as wonderfully as we've been created, even with the capacity to procreate. We, in and of ourselves, are not sources of life. God alone is. We are dependent upon him. And so humanity is given the option to eat from the tree of life if they so choose. Now also in the middle of the garden was a second tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As we talk about the five trees in our church, we say there's a tree of life. And then there's a tree of freedom. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was God presenting humanity with a choice. He wasn't containing them in a paradise prison called 
Eden or earth, saying, you are forced to forever be in relationship with me. Where there is force, where there is control, there is an absence of real relationship, there is an absence of love. And God, as we know through scripture, God is love. And if he was to contain humanity in a paradise prison, it would be against his nature of love, a violation of love itself. Therefore, he must present humanity with the choice and opportunity to opt for him or opt elsewhere. And so humanity has a tree in the garden of dependence, and then they also have a tree that they could choose to eat from if they wish of independence. It's a gesture of freedom from God. It's his way of saying, listen, I haven't created you to be robots and not have a relationship with me. This is all about love and relationship, and if you don't want me, you have an option out. And he gives a fair warning. Listen, you can do that, but when you do that, when you eat of independence, you're no longer eating of life, you're eating of death. It will kill you. It will kill our world. And of course, as we know from the first chapters of Scripture, Adam and Eve take it. Independence. And I think the longer you and I maybe walk out our faith or just grapple honestly with life and reality, we come face to face with the fact that You and I are Adam and Eve too. We in our own ways have opted for independence and brought more and more chaos to our lives and to our world. And who could ever save us from that? Who could ever avoid it? As we move into Revelation 5, you and I need to remember that from the beginning, God has committed himself to ruling his creation through relationship with people. But in the Old Testament, we're quickly presented with a couple of problems. The first being this, all of humanity has a bent towards independence. And the second problem is this, now God needs to restore and renew his people and his creation through a person. Because he's committed to ruling creation through people. N.T. Wright, theologian and scholar, says it this way, for God then to say, Well, humans have failed, so I'll do it some other way, would be to unmake the very structure of his good creation and turn it into a different sort of world entirely. Someone must be found. Is there anybody who has not themselves contributed in some way to the problems of creation? And all of us, all the Adams and Eves in this room, realize, oh, I too have contributed to the undoing of creation. So how is God going to repair things with a human when we're in this kind of condition? The haunting question that kind of hovers like a bad smell over the Old Testament is this. Is there anyone who can actually redeem history? Is there anyone who can actually make amends for our independence from God? Is there anyone who can actually renew people and renew creation? I mean, can you do that? I can't. Is there anyone? So with those foundational thoughts in mind, let's go now to Revelation chapter 5. On the heels of chapter 4, it begins this way. After the first sort of movements of worship in chapter 4, it says now, Then... I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll 
with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. In the coming weeks, we're going to get into a little bit of what those seals mean and what's going on with the scroll. For our purposes today, it might be worth asking, does the scroll potentially represent all of human history? Verse 2, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who, who could actually make sense of human history for us? Who can actually bring some redemption to all of this? Who can actually renew and restore things in the midst of their present condition? Verse 3, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. John has a very emotional response. I wept and I wept because no one, again there it says, no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside of it. I want us just to pause for a moment and consider no one. There's a problem in heaven. We think that heaven has no issues. Here's a problem. No one is found that's able to take the scroll, open its seal. And so John weeps and weeps and weeps. I want us just to think for a moment. As humanity, as we look back on our thousands of years of existence in history, formed in God's image with tremendous capabilities and capacities, there are phenomenal things that humans have accomplished and will continue to accomplish. As humanity, we have figured out how to build skyscrapers. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. That, I mean, what an engineering feat. What a magnificent thing to move creation and reform it in all kinds of different ways to put skyscrapers on a city line. We have found ways to put hundreds of people into a 700,000-pound metal tube, put wings on it, and send it 30,000 feet into the air. We've figured that out. It's remarkable. As humans, we've figured out how to create computers, robots, artificial intelligence. We've figured out how to read genetic code. Humanity can create music and poetry and story and film that can move the human soul. But no one can redeem history. No one can make amends for independence, and no one can renew people and creation. None of us are capable of it. No wonder there's a panic at this moment in heaven. Verse 5, then one of the elders, remember the 24 elders? One of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, he wants John to see something, and John wants you and I to see something. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Those two references are a way in the Jewish context of the day to understand, look, the Messiah, the longed-for one, the deliverer, behold him. He has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then in the most, like, surprising way... John's been told to, to behold something. Listen to what happens. Then I saw, and in the Greek says thereafter saw, then I saw and behold. So now John is saying, I saw something and readers, listeners, I want you to behold this too. A lamb. Remember he was told there was a lion? What do you think he was expecting to see when he looked up? 
Do you think there was any surprise for him as he expected to see a powerful representative of the messianic rule and way of God on earth? Absolutely he was. Everybody expected God to show up as a lion. How did he show up? A lamb. Then I saw, behold, a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Slain is a very nice sounding word. I mean, it's pretty awful, but if you were to translate it as accurately as possible, it might be better to say, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slaughtered, butchered. Standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures, remember them from last week, and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes. This, again, is helpful for us to remember. It's apocalyptic language. This is not describing what Jesus actually looks like. Some of you maybe grew up in a world where you're thinking, oh, I don't want to go to heaven if I have to see Jesus looking like that. He doesn't have seven horns. He, he doesn't have seven eyes. This is descriptive language saying horns represent power. He has complete power. Eyes represent wisdom. He has complete wisdom. Carries on saying these are the seven spirits of God sent out where? The complete spirit of God is where? The earth, the lamb came and took the scroll from the right hand who, of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures, sorry, let's stop there. I'll get it back into verse eight in just a moment. I want us to think for a few moments about some of the things we see living in this text. I believe there are four things in particular that we're meant to behold about the lamb, and then as we get into verse eight in just a few moments, we'll understand how you and I are called to respond together to said lamb on the throne. Four things to behold about the lamb. First is this, behold, the lamb is at the center of humanity. As we're introduced to the lamb in this text, where is the lamb? In the midst or in the middle of the four living creatures, which represent the creations of God, and the 24 elders, which represent the redeemed people of God. The lamb is at the center of humanity because the lamb is human. We're approaching Christmas. I think Clay said, I can't remember, there's a countdown. It was 11 weeks last week or something like that. I don't know. Christmas is on its way. I hope you're getting ready. Christmas is fun. There's nostalgia. There's caroling. There's food. Most importantly, the message, the heart of Christmas is this. God does not stand far off watching humanity and its suffering. He gets as close as possible by what means. Fancy word used in scripture, incarnation. God became flesh and dwelt among us. The lamb is at the center of humanity. Secondly, behold, the lamb is little. The lamb is little. In the Greek New Testament, which is the language the New Testament portion of the Bible was originally written in, there are two words used for lamb. The first is amnos. When John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he says, behold, the amnos of God. The sheep or the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And then there's a second word used in the Greek in the New Testament, it's arneon. And arneon only means little lamb. So little it could almost be feeble. 
Behold, says John, expecting to see a lion, does not see an umnos, just a sheep or a lamb, sees our neon, a little lamb. I want you just to contrast this. Christianity is unique for many, many things. And here's one of them. Think about the way in which empires rule themselves and kingdoms rule themselves and political systems and governments rule themselves and even people conduct themselves in business or school or whatever it may be. We're always trying to posture to appear to have more power than we already have. It's the human condition, isn't it? Except when God shows up or neon. Um, some of you maybe have seen videos from Russia through the years. Uh, I don't know if Vladimir Putin is still doing this, but for a while he had an annual tradition of playing in a hockey game in Russia against real professional hockey players. Has anybody seen some of the videos? They are the most comical things you've ever seen. Four years ago, there was a great, you can, follow, you can watch the YouTube clip of it, it's maybe two, three minutes long. It's, it shows all of the Putin highlights from the game he played in. He scored eight goals. Now, he's about 20 or 30, 40 years older than most of the other players on the ice. They are all fit as fiddles, remarkable hockey players. But when Putin is on the ice, no one dares defend him. No one dares. Imagine being the goalie and having him shoot a puck at you. You think, dear God, I hope I don't save this. <laughs> People die after these games for saves and for defensive plays. In the game, it was perfect poetic justice. In the, game, in the game, he scored eight goals in. I mean, watch the goals. They are pathetic. And the efforts of the defensemen to try to stop him are ridiculous. And then after the game, his team, of course, has won. And he's the first star of the game, having scored eight goals. What a champion. He's circling, skating around the ice, receiving congratulations from the whole arena. And he trips on the red carpet and falls on his face. I, will, I watched the highlight again yesterday. Just, it's a good laugh. You watch the other teammates of his that are skating behind him as he's doing his victory lap. There's a couple of them that see the red carpet coming, and one of them, none of them have the courage to stop him or tell him, because that would be embarrassing to him. Of course, you see it, but he doesn't, and so they're sort of gesturing. I'm sure he's watched those highlights back and saw those people, and they're probably not living anymore. This is how it goes in our world when we have political leaders who are insecure. Not Arneon, as powerful and impressive as possible. I feel so sorry for the people, sincerely, of North Korea. Trapped in a false reality, being sold things that are absolutely not true. And occasionally, us Westerners can grab little pieces of news or propaganda that comes out of North Korea, and it's laughable. There's the dynasty of the King, Kim Young uns and twos and all of that. Here's a few facts that have been distributed to the North Korean people about their fear, fearless, impressive leaders. Um, Kim Young un wrote um, in university 1,500 books. That's quite, I mean, I don't know, he probably got all his papers done too, but in addition to that, he wrote 1,500 books. Also um, writing six full-length operas which to the North Korean people are understood to be the best pieces of music ever written in all human existence. Now, how could somebody do that, you might ask? Well, he, had, he clearly had an advantage because he began walking at three weeks old. Uh, he began talking at eight weeks old. 
So he got off to a good start and then began driving at three years old. And the North Korean people are led to believe this. Now, he decided he wanted to take up golf and see how he'd do. So on his very first golf game ever, he shot a minus 38, the best golf score ever achieved in human history. And this was verified and signed off on by all 17 of his bodyguards that witnessed it. Imagine him needing bodyguards, and nobody else saw it, but they all signed off on it. Now, interestingly, because he had such, 11 of his shots were holes in one, by the way. His worst hole was a birdie. Poor guy. Um, in the end, after the game, he decided to retire from all sports forever. So he just had, he couldn't live up to his own thing. This is not our neon. This is insecure leadership posturing, isn't it? And what was going on in Rome in the time of John's writing to the churches in ancient Turkey? The emperor. Roman culture, Roman leadership. Power, 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 power. And so we're going to show a picture. People are going to put on their glasses and see what's really going on behind the scenes. And we're going to see just how impressive God is. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. Our Messiah has shown up. And I turned and I beheld. And everybody behold with me. A slaughtered, feeble lamb. Not impressive. Wow. Behold him. Thirdly, behold, that lamb, the little lamb, has triumphed. And how did the lamb triumph? Not by hurting, not by killing, not by being a lion, but by being a little lamb. Colossians 2 says this, God made you and I alive with Christ. He forgave us of all our sins, having canceled the written code and its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away by nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by being a lion. No, triumphing over them by being butchered, humiliated, pinned naked to a tree. Humanity, here is your God. How impressive. And yet, it is triumph. The lamb is little, the lamb is butchered, but the lamb in Revelation 5, is alive. Fourth, behold, the Lamb is at the center of God. Where is the Lamb seen? First, we're under, we understand that he's among the four living creatures, or he's in the midst of the four living creatures, and the 24 elders redeemed humanity. And then what does it say? He's at the center of the throne. What a deliberate vision for us to behold. Jesus is not just sort of this great teacher. Jesus is not sort of this good life coach with some interesting ways of living that you might want to consider following. Jesus is human, and he is also fully God. He's at the very center of the throne. Jesus is Yahweh in human flesh. 
What is God like? God is not like the emperor. God is not like Putin. God is not like North Korean leaders. God is not like business leaders and bullies at school who push their ways around. God is not like you and I in our most insecure moments where we try to pretend to have power. God is like Jesus, the lamb that was butchered, killed, and then rose again and conquered death. Hebrews 1.3, speaking of what God is like, says this, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus is the exact, could you say exact? Jesus is the exact representation of his being. Behold, the lamb is at the center of God. The lamb has triumphed, the lamb is little, and the lamb is at the center of humanity. Now, before we go into the remaining verses in this text, I want to just acknowledge something. I wrote about it this past week in The Dearly Beloved. Some of you read it. For most of us last week, as we journeyed through Revelation chapter 4, it was triumphant, it was victorious, it was exciting to put on glasses and see what's really going on behind the scenes. But for many of us, there's also a, a weird tension that we experience where we're like, I like putting on those glasses, I like seeing what's happening. But what about the chaos that's still happening in our world? God, where are you? When I put on the glasses, I see you're in heaven. Where are you? It's okay to be honest. Scripture is full of honesty. And for some of you, I think you'd say, God, I see you're on the throne, but don't just sit there. Do something. And there's a real tension that some of us feel. I had somebody come up after one of the services just saying, I'm, I'm so thankful to see what we're seeing in Revelation, but I'm just so troubled by what's happening in Israel right now. I don't want more people dying. I don't want Israeli people dying. I don't want Palestinian people dying. I want peace. Why is this happening? Where's God? Why isn't he doing something about this? And there are real questions, aren't there? I want to show you a picture. This is my grandma. She's the one that taught me apple pie without cheese is like a hug without a squeeze. She's been struggling for the last couple of years with dementia. She's in, she turned 91 in September. This last week, my mom let me know that she started declining in a real rapid pace. She stopped eating, stopped drinking water. When I preach, I get up real early on. Sunday mornings to pray and prepare my heart to behold Jesus. But this morning, my grandma got up earlier than I did. She passed away. She's beholding Jesus. And as I grappled this week, knowing this was probably coming, there were very real feelings about her suffering. And my poor grandpa who we all thought was going to pass first, was panic-stricken this morning as he shook her body 
calling for help in the home that they live. And she wasn't responding. And I didn't like thinking this week about how, how she was suffering. And how her body was struggling to hold on to life and at the same time wanting to let go. And there can be times where you think, God, couldn't you get up and do something about this? And we feel that after Revelation 4. But the good news comes in Revelation 5. While the Father is seated on the throne, he did get up and do something about humanity and its suffering. And he is doing something. And it's through the very little lamb who was butchered. Daryl Johnson says this, the throne feels suffering. The closer we get to the heart of the lamb, the closer we get to a heart that aches for a suffering world. Behold the lamb. So what's the response to the lamb, you may ask? Well, it's a lot like the response to the throne in chapter 5. Let me begin reading from verse 8 right now. And when the Lamb had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. And as Daryl Johnson writes, here comes the first of three explosions of worship. First from the inner circle, then the outer circle, and then the whole cosmos, including my grandma, join in worship together. And here's how it sounds. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open it because you were butchered. You were slain. And with your blood, you purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 encircling the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice they sang worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise now to the third explosion of worship then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing this to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb Jesus friends is God he is worthy of our worship be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever the four living creatures said amen let it be so and the elders couldn't contain their worship they fell down and they worshiped could we stand up and could we worship the lamb together in response. Friend, today you may behold in your own day-to-day -day life some chaos, some difficulty, but could we learn to follow the way of the Lamb, which is, as we said earlier in the service, to look into heaven, to see what's going on there, to draw from those realities and bring them towards earth. Friends, it's real for you and I to face difficulty, pain, and chaos at times. But there is a message from Revelation to behold the Lamb 
What do you think this text meant to those first seven churches? Pressure, persecution. Waking up each day wondering, will this be my last? Not because they're 91 years old, but because they're being persecuted for their faith. And they have a certain hope because there is a throne. And Yahweh is seated and simultaneously the lamb is standing victorious and he's worthy. Would you join me right now in looking past the circumstances that surround your life right now, looking into heaven, could we behold the lamb together in worship? this fall as a whole church is to gather in groups to connect and grow together our youth are doing it midweek multiple times our kids are doing it Sunday mornings and Thursdays and as adults the rest of us have the opportunity to gather in midweek groups and to discuss what we're going through in Revelation together we have a discussion guide guess how many questions again this week somehow I'm by God's grace I pulled it off seven again Wow there are seven guiding questions. You can find them on our website, cpclife.com. Click on Church Life and then click, click on Groups and you'll see the link to where you find the discussion questions. So if you're following along, even with your spouse at home or over the phone with a friend or on Zoom or in your coffee club or pop-up group or life group, these questions will be great to help guide you to behold Jesus together, to unpack some of what we talked about. How does this matter to your life right now? How does this change what life looks like on Tuesday or Saturday this week? You'll have the chance to talk about it. One other thing that... I'm just so excited about this year again through our groups as we approach Christmas it seems that the most effective way that we can be involved in mission here in the Comox Valley is not alone but is together in groups and so this week I'm inviting all of the groups to begin brainstorming over the next six weeks what could you do together maybe at the end of November or beginning sometime in December what could you do together as a group to bring blessing and life and love to somebody who doesn't know Jesus yet. Maybe you all know this person. Maybe just one person in your group knows somebody and you decide, we're gonna team up together to bless your neighbor or that coworker of yours, that single mom down the street. We're gonna pool resources together. We're gonna help them. We're gonna make Christmas special for them just so that they have a, a way of feeling the love of Jesus in a fresh or first time kind of way. So I want you brainstorming in groups. and. In the coming weeks, we're gonna let you know, as you come up with great ideas for how your group can be on mission together with some sort of Christmas outreach, whether it's meeting a need or throwing a Christmas party or something, we have resources we've set aside as a church to help empower your group. We wanna help fund what you have in your heart to do. So more information will be coming for you on that in the future. Can I pray for you as we conclude today? Father, 
we acknowledge that sometimes it's very, very hard for us to look into heaven like you did, Jesus. But by your spirit, I know you'll help us today, this week. Would you help us to look into unseen realms and see where the Father is seated, to see together with the Father and the Spirit at work, the Lamb. And as a church family, as individuals, Father, it's our heart's desire to learn how to bring your heavenly realities toward us and our world today. We're going into your world on your mission, and we want our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates to experience the same kind of hope, peace, love, truth, it's only available through Jesus. So empower us. We need you. We need each other. We pray this in the strongest name, which is yours, Jesus. And everyone said, amen. amen, amen. I think before you leave, you should at least turn to one or two people. Give them a nice, bright smile. If you didn't brush your teeth properly today, give one of these kind of smiles. But just give a smile. And enjoy the beautiful weather today. It's a crisp fall day. Be blessed. Enjoy it. If you need prayer, please come forward. Somebody would love to pray with you today. God bless you. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged you as you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more.